The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Today FM. I'm delighted that we have for the Culture Club today, Kip the Wall, who is the author of a terrific memoir, Without Warning and Only Sometimes, Scenes from an Unpredictable Childhood, uh, growing up in the Midlands in the UK from an Irish and Caribbean family. And uh, of course, she wrote a terrific novel a number of years ago, which won the Kerry Group Irish Novel of the Year, My Name is Leon, which has been adapted recently for BBC One. And she wrote this new book while she was writer in residence at the University of Limerick. Uh, Kit, thank you very much for taking the time to join us here on The Last Word of Today FM. The choices that you're going to give us for the Culture Club, are they, do you think, very much influenced by your mix of Irish, Caribbean and Midlands upbringing? Completely. Um, They're all um, things that speak to a part of me. You know, there's a definite part of me that connects with all of these songs. And I think all of us have sort of multiple identities, but I think my multiple identities are a little bit perhaps more extreme than usual. Indeed. Tell us a little bit, before we talk about all your choices, though, tell us about the book and going back and mining your memory for all of the things that happened to you in your childhood and then putting it down on paper. What sort of experience was that like for you? Um, it was it was a great experience. I mean, all of us have, you know, 20 anecdotes about our life that we've spoken about over the years and stories we tell to people that we know that we've sort of perfected and streamlined and made funny or made sad or whatever. And I think that when I first started to write the memoir, I thought that's what it would be, you know, a series of ha-ha funny anecdotes and, you know, just rattle it off and it'd be fine. But obviously, when you actually go back and examine these anecdotes for what they really were and actually look at the truth of them rather than what you've made them become, um, it was very, very different. You know, I, I always joke about being hungry when I was a child and in the book, I had to actually go back and describe being hungry. And that's a completely different thing. Um, so it was it was a real learning experience for me. And it was also an experience where I found an enormous amount of sympathy and understanding for my parents. Um, you know, I'm older now than I was obviously when I was a child and, and my parents, they were young. You know, they were struggling with five children. They didn't have a particularly happy marriage. And I just have, I suppose, more respect for them now than I ever had, um, that they ever bothered to stay together and feed us at all is a miracle. Did you go back and speak to people from the period to sort of test the reliability of your memories? What I did was, when I had finished the memoir, I sent it to my uh, five, four brothers and sisters, and I said, this is what I'm going to say and this is what I'm going to, it will be published. And the four of you have the power of veto over any sentence or paragraph or chapter um, because obviously this is my memory of my parents and my childhood, but it massively affects my brothers and sisters. Um, and, you know, I'm talking about their parents and their childhood. So I sent that to them um, and one sister wanted to change two words. Apart from that, they went, yep, that's what happened. That's how it was and didn't change anything. So that must have been very gratifying, was it? As even just to the reliability of your memory. Yes, it really was gratifying because I thought, God, you know, each of them could veto 
10,000 words and I wouldn't have a book. Um, but they went, you know, it, it really was good to know that I was telling the truth and I was being fair and true and, you know, not unpleasant, not unkind to anybody um, or shaming anybody, but I was telling the truth exactly as it, as it happened to us. You mentioned about the memory of hunger and then having to go back and write about it. There was a lot of want growing up in your childhood. Was there music and books and television and movies? Did they play a big part in overcoming that? Or was that something that actually only developed a, a little bit later in your life? We had no books. So we had the Bible, uh, which we had to read because my mother changed from being a Catholic to being a Jehovah's Witness. So we read the Bible a lot. Unfortunately, I didn't want to. We had no other books at home. Uh, my father read The News of the World, which is a, a great work of fi fiction most of the time. And um, we had film. My father was absolutely obsessed with old film. So I think that was my introduction to storytelling, if you like. It was through film as opposed to through literature. And, you know, good film can take your mind off an empty belly, as we found out. Um, and that was really uh, the only art um, sort of exposure to the arts that we had. We didn't go to, you know, we weren't a family that went to art galleries or anything like that. Um, it, it was really film and, and storytelling and plot and character in the brilliant old-fashioned films. You know, the old classics, Humphrey Bogart, um, you know, the gangster films, the film noir, Hitchcock, that's how I learned story, if, if anywhere. Well, we normally start with music, but I'm actually going to start with movies because of that. And you selected as your favourite movie, uh, Brief Encounter. Now, tell oh, us about that movie. Yes. Oh, I could talk about Brief Encounter forever. Um, so Brief Encounter was written in 1939. And it was um, written by... Um, oh, I've forgotten his name. What's his name? I can't a, help you, unfortunately, with no, this one. Noel Coward. Noel All Coward. right, it's okay. by Noel Coward, who was a gay man. And the whole um, story, it's a story about restraint and it's about a story holding back and not, not doing what you want to do. It's a story about secrecy and it's a story about an affair that, almost comes to physical um, consummation, but not quite. Um, and it's a film about longing and loving. It's absolutely beautiful. And I think, you know, if anyone was going to, to, to write about that, it would be a gay man who had these, who would know what it was not to be able to love who you openly love who you want to. Um, it has a score, if you can call it a score, that the soundtrack is Rachmaninoff's second concerto, which is, Thoroughly beautiful. And it's acted by two, you know, obviously they're, they're Hollywood stars, well, they're English stars, um, Celia Johnson and Trevor Howard. They are not traditionally beautiful people. You know, it's not Vivian Lee and Laurence Olivier. It's two plain people with plain, ordinary lives who have this moment that turns into uh, love both, neither of them are free, neither of them can act on it. And it's really the most beautiful film. What a study in the unsaid. That's really what it is. It's a study in what doesn't happen, what we actually isn't said. have a clip 
featuring Trevor Howard and Celia Johnson. It's too late now to be as sensible as all that. It's too late to forget what we said. And anyway, whether we said it or not couldn't have mattered. We know. We've both of us known for a long time. How can you say that? I've only known you for four weeks. We only talked for the first time last Thursday week. Last Thursday week. Has it been a long time for you since then? Answer me truly. Yes. How often did you decide that you were never going to see me again? Several times a day. So did I. <laughs> I love you. I love your wide eyes. The way you smile. And your shyness. And the way you laugh at my jokes. Please don't. I love you. I love you. You love me too. It's no use pretending it hasn't happened, because it has. Yes, it has. I don't want to pretend anything either to you or to anyone else. But from now on, I shall have to. That's what's wrong, don't you see? That's what spoils everything. That's why we must stop here and now talking like this. We're neither of us free to love each other. There's too much in the way. There's still time. If we control ourselves, behave like sensible human beings. There's still time. <laughs> Kit, when did that movie first grab you? Oh, I remember coming home. So I, I had left home at this point and I was living a life of debauchery uh, elsewhere in, in, the, um, in, the, in Birmingham. And I'd seen it before. I'd seen the film as a child. Obviously, as a child, I thought it was a little bit boring. And I remember coming home to see my little sister who still lived at home and the film had just started, BBC Two. And I sat on the edge, the arm of the sofa thinking I'll sit here for 10 minutes and just watch whatever it is with my sister. Oh, I watched it all and I got it. You know, I was 21 and I got it. I think if I watched it now and I watch it perhaps every two years or so, I'd see something else and I'd get it in a different way. And the film obviously has stayed the same, but I've sort of grown into a person that can understand what that feels like. And, you know, I'm somebody whose husband has an affair with someone. I don't approve of affairs, but um, the, the passion and the tragedy is, is beautiful. It's so well done. You mentioned one other movie for us as well, which is entirely different. It's based on the Frederick Forsyth novel, Day of the Jackal. Oh, yes. My God, what a great film. So, Day of the Jackal, the, the book is fantastic. And I've just finished Frederick Forsyth's memoir, where he talks about writing it. Um, it's the sort of film that you, you know, you turn on the telly and you see a, a scene of the day of the jackal, it's not at the beginning, might be sort of 15 minutes in. You can you think, oh, I'll turn it off when it gets boring. It never gets boring. Again, it's a film with absolutely superb um, script that is lean, very unwordy. The way that they paint the characters, you know, even the most minor person has had, you know, is, is well done 3D fleshed out and as for plotting it's absolutely superb i mean it's it's a masterclass in how to plot and keep the tension you know absolutely taut all the way through because i've seen that film at least seven or eight times i still think he might get away with it at the end and not get killed 
Um, it's brilliant. It's an absolutely brilliant book. Okay, I'm going to leave the music to the second half of this interview and I'm going to go to plays now. You've nominated Samuel Beckett's Crap's Last Table. Yes, fantastic. Again, I mean, I think there's a theme here because this is also um, a study in what is not said. And I went to see Crap's Last Table probably, I don't know, 20 years ago, Michael Gambon in a theatre in, in London and it's him and a tape recorder and a chair. And it's again, I mean, you know, done well. It's the sort of thing that, you, you know, he's doing nothing and you cannot look away. Or he does a minor, minor action, like try, goes to turn the tape recorder on and decides not to. It's brilliantly done. And again, the unravelling and the unfurling of the past, which is something I really love, that the story uh, goes back, comes to the present, goes back. That sort of playing with time, playing with the reader and what and the, the audience, what the audience needs to know at any given time. It's It's very sad, very, very clever. And again, masterclass in structure. So let's move from there to books. And with, as with many authors, they find it impossible to nominate <laughs> a favourite book or a favourite yes. author. But you did go for one as somebody who's a great favourite on this programme and has actually also been a, a member of the Culture Club here, giving us all of his choices. And that's Kevin Barry. And you've nominated City of Bahan. <gasps> yes. So the City of Bahan was... Um, a book, so I remember talking to somebody and saying, I don't like books that are dystopian or happen in the future or whatever. I said, I'm just not into that. And she said, oh, you should listen to The City of Bohan, read The City of Bohan by Kevin Barry. And I was like, oh, God, I better do it because it's a good friend of mine and I'll have to. So I thought, I'll get the audio book because I knew he read it. Didn't know Kevin Barry, didn't know his work. And I was utterly hooked on it. What a great story for a start. The characters are brilliant, but it really comes to life, I think, through his reading of it. And a lot of authors can't read their own work. He does, and he can, and he does it brilliantly. Well, as it happens, Kit, we actually have a clip, so you can talk a bit more about that once you've heard oh. it. Yes, and Logan was in his element as he made progress through the labyrinth. He feared not to shadows. He knew the fibres of the place. He knew every last twist and lilt of it. Jenny Ching waited beneath the may tree in the 98er square. He approached the girl and his step was enough. She needn't look up to make the wreck. He smiled for her all the same, and it was a wry and long-suffering smile as though to say, More of it, Jenny and he sat on the bench beside. He laid a hand on hers that was tiny, delicate, murderous. The bench had dead seasons of lovers' names scratched into it. Well, Gerline, he said. Cunt what been reefed in Smoketown, she said, was a Cusack off the north side rises. And did he have a coming, Jenny? Don't they always, she said, Cusacks. Logan shaped his lips thinly in agreement. The Cusack family has always been crooked, girl, he said. Kevin Barry, City of Bayonne. Wow. There's so much poetry in that. I mean, 
to describe somebody hearing someone coming and say his step was enough, she didn't need to turn her head. Oh, I mean, you know, as a writer, you dream about saying phrases like that or what he says about the bench had lost seasons of lovers' names. Just brilliant. Even making a character out of a bench with names carved into it. He's a you know, fantastic writer and poet. And that film is it's, it's a sort of a high noon. It's sort of, a, you know, a Western, uh, this sort of edge of the world or edge of Ireland town that's full of, you know, characters and um, people, gangs that are against each other, men who are trying to get each other, women. Um, his mother, Logan Hartnett's mother, I think is called Gurley. Or Gerline, oh my God, so, such a great character. He's, he's, it's really brilliant. And it certainly inspired me to be a writer. I, I was listening to Kevin Barry just as I was trying to write novels and short stories. And he definitely inspired me to do good work because I had that as a, as a blueprint. Let's go to music, Kit. And uh, first single that you remember buying apparently is Elton John's Rocket Man back in 1972. Why did you choose that? Um, it was definitely uh, uh, the first time I had chosen my own music. So I grew up with an Irish mom, and country and western, obviously, is what we had to listen to. Jim Reeves, Con- uh, Conway Twitty, you know, not my choice of music at all. My father didn't really listen to music, but my grandfather, my Irish grandfather, played the fiddle and he used to play traditional Irish music, which was very beautiful. But it certainly didn't, you know, it spoke to a bit of me. It didn't speak, this was, you know, wasn't my choice. And I think Rocket Man was the first song that was my choice, the first song that I thought that speaks to me. I thought it was very sad and beautiful and... It's sort of, if ever I hear it, I remember listening to it on an old-fashioned radiogram type thing with an arm. And I bought a 45 um, record and I'd take off the needle and put it to to the beginning and I'd take off the needle and put it to the beginning until I knew every single word and the way he said it and the way he sang it. It's It's a beautiful song anyway and a very unusual song very unusual angle to come at a song. Let's hear a little bit of it. She packed my bags last night pre-flight Zero hour, 9 a.m. And I'm gonna be high As a kite by then That may be one of the 
best first choices that we've actually had from many of the guests on the Culture Club. That's one that stands the test of time. That wasn't yes. sort of a a childish ditty that you picked as your first purchase. <laughs> Tell us about your favourite band, Bob Marley and the Wailers. Yes, so this was another um, another another example, I suppose, of me exploring a part of my identity. And I think I was 14, 15 probably when I first heard Bob Marley's, um, I think it was Lively Up Yourself, Natty Dread album. And I didn't like it. And I remember thinking something, there's something about it, but I didn't sort of get the tune. I didn't get the music. It wasn't like anything I'd heard. I was very much into pop music before then or Earth, Wind and Fire. And this was this was really um, a man speaking to um, the very primal part of me. He was speaking about black emancipation, black oppression, the way that no one else had spoken before. It was wild uh, what he was saying and it was angry and unapologetic. And I'm not Jamaican. He was he was really speaking and singing in Jamaican patois. But I understood it, but I, I couldn't say it. And I remember thinking, this is uh, music of rebellion. This is music of um, unapologetically, I am black and this is who I am. And I wanted to love it. And of course, the more I listened to it and understood the lyrics and, and believed what he said and wanted to be on board with what he was saying, the more I began to love it until by the time, you know, three months later, I knew all the words. I could sing it in the Jamaican accent, however badly. And um, it's very much stayed with me. His his lyrics and the things that he's speaking about are something quite difficult to articulate, but it's certainly about black emancipation and freedom. Let's hear a little bit of Is This Love? band for Kit the Wall but you mentioned Earth, Wind and Fire and I believe your favourite album is The Way of the World by Earth, Wind and Fire tell us about that Oh yes um, I don't know how I discovered Earth, Wind and Fire but there is a track on the Earth, on the That's the Way of the World album called That's the Way of the World and um, my sisters have always said that they can't listen to that song without thinking of me um, and when I turned 50, um, I'd, ne- I'd never got to see them. When I, when I turned 50, they were doing a tour of um, a world tour and actually came to Birmingham on my 50th birthday. And I had loved them since I was, uh, you know, 15 or 16. 
And I got to go and hear them sing that song on my 50th birthday. And it was really beautiful. It was almost a coming of age um, moment for me. They were, obviously, they're black Americans. They're not black uh, Caribbeans like I was. But they were, I mean, musically so accomplished musicians, beautiful lyrics, fantastic vocals, and very much um, spoke to to where I was at the time when I heard their music and loved their music, which was disco. It was being sexy and young and dancing the night away and just really epitomised my youth and what I was doing with my youth, my youth going out and having a good time. And they're very glamorous. They wear, you know, Earth, Wind & Fire, they used to wear these sort of sequin cat suits and platforms and makeup. <laughs> and it was really, you know, the 80s, the 70s and the 80s when everything was super large. And I could just remember thinking, you know, if I could only just be in Earth, Wind & Fire, I'd be fine. I'd, you know, I'd fit in really well. Fantastic music as well. Just, you know, music to live to. Well, the track we have is Shining Star. Wind and Fire, Shining Star from The Way of the World. Well, Kit, if that's your favourite album, it's no surprise to hear that Stevie Wonder is your favourite artist. Oh, wow. Yes. I mean, I was just dancing around the kitchen, actually, as you were speak- as I was listening to that song. Stevie Wonder is, in my opinion, one of the greatest musicians that's ever lived. He sings about things that really matter. He sings about things that are frivolous. He thinks, sings about childhood, love, broken heart, politics. And some of his music is just, in, I mean, it's incredibly accomplished. The words are beautiful. There's one particular album he um, did called Visions. I think that was probably 1977. And there's a song on there called Inner Visions, and it's about him imagining a beautiful, a better world. And there's no better song, I think, that encapsulates how we could live and how we could be versus how we are. And he sings about those kinds of really deep emotional um, moments. And then he'll sing a song like Don't You Worry About a Thing, which is just the opposite. You know, it's just like, listen, everything's going to be fine. We're all good. Um, and, it, and a, you know, a really punchy, poppy song like happy birthday, or I just called to say I love you. He's he's amazing. He's just so versatile. And somehow, I always think he's singing to me. He's, there's a beautiful song um, that he sings called Joy Inside My Tears, which is just very poignant. And when I, it's one of those songs that whenever I hear it, I think 
God, you know, he's singing that to me or he's telling me something. Well, you've named he's a fantastic. lot of his songs. Unfortunately, <laughs> the one that we've picked out is not amongst your list, but I'm sure you must love, as everyone loves, Superstition. Oh, God, yes. superstitious we're getting tight on time kit so i'm going to go straight to the best gig and you have ranking roger singing stand on margaret at a gig in birmingham in 1980 i presume that margaret was margaret thatcher was it it absolutely was and if he was here with us still he's dead actually but if he was here with us still he'd be singing stand down liz um he this this was a fantastic gig it was at the height of margaret thatcher's appalling reign and some of her most, um, try not to swear, some of her most uh, draconian measures uh, against minors, against poor people, against society itself, as far as I'm concerned, unapologetically not Tory here. Um, and at this gig that we went to, uh, he started, I mean, I know it was a song, but a song I'd never heard before. And I knew him a little bit at the time because he was from Birmingham. And he started singing Stand Down, Margaret. Oh, my God, the place went wild. And you could feel the, the floor bouncing and people shouting. It was most incredible atmosphere of solidarity against uh, the oppression, as far as I'm concerned, that is the Conservative Party against working people. Let's hear a little bit of it. Not from the gig you saw in Birmingham, but this was in London with the beat playing with Rankin Roger. Here's a little bit of Stand On Margaret. Work, white law, short shop. World war, 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 war. Stand 
Okay, political ending. Unfortunately, Kit, I've run out of time, so I'm not going to get to your TV shows, uh, Rising <laughs> Damp and Breaking Bad, but they have both been nominated by many people on the Culture Club previously. We have spoken about them. It's been terrific having the opportunity to talk to you and congratulations on the terrifically written new memoir, Without Warning and Only Sometimes. Kit DeWall, thank you very much for joining us on the Culture Club on The Last Word of Today FM. Thank you so much. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.